Day podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined remotely as I have been the last few months by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. Hey, man. It's a, it's a remote world. It is a remote world, and uh, it is getting close to being a basketball world again, if we can say that. I mean, teams have reported to the bubble. Players are showing uh, some of their comical lack of self-awareness by posting complaints about food and their rooms like Rajon Rondo's putting an IG story up showing like a pretty solid room with a great view and he's got like the thumbs down talking about how bad the room is I think it was a middle finger actually oh there you go I thought yeah even worse Patrick Beverly to his credit did say the bubble is what you make it and said his room wasn't bad of uh, was it Troy Daniels who was it that Troy Daniels was one of them who showed his his tray dinner yeah, it looked like airline food, which is apparently only part of the the first couple of days of quarantine. Uh, and look, uh, obviously, these guys are used to better food than that. At the same time, given everything that's going on in the world, I don't think people have the patience to listen to NBA players complain about the fact that their first two days of quarantine involved maybe not the best food or their nice hotel rooms aren't quite nice enough. Also, like even the, the Troy Daniels, the tray of food, it ended up that that was just like the first of multiple trays that arrived like they might not be fed the first couple days the way they're used to which they will eventually once things settle down in the bubble but it's also not the worst thing like they're acting like they're on that i don't know if if you ever watched tiger king and joe exotic but before he went to jail he had like this famous instagram post where he had a bun and it was literally just potato chips and ketchup and he captioned it tough times call for tough measures uh hot dog and potato chip sandwich without the hot dog. Like these players are acting like they're on the Joe exotic diet. Chill. Yeah. And like, you know, to be clear, I think it's okay. And it should be okay for these players to express any concerns or reservations that they might have. They're sort of putting themselves at risk by committing to this restart and you know they're doing it for themselves but they're also doing it in part for the nba and so i think it's okay for them to have a certain standard you know that they expect the nba to live up to because they're the ones who are putting themselves you know in harm's way inside the bubble they're the ones who are doing the work at the same time yeah i agree it's not a great look um and i think you know look at the end of the day, like they're not on vacation. They're they're there to do a job. And I think from the sounds of it, like there are and I'm not saying this in any way to like excuse like any unfavorable conditions for the players while they're in Orlando. Um, or say that like just because they can go and play golf or go bowling whenever they want, that they should just like shut up and be grateful and play. Um, but but I think you know, given the circumstances, uh, you know, the situation sounds better uh, than than it could be, you know, like the, the facilities are capacious, um, like they have access to golf and to bowling and to restaurants. And like you said, it doesn't seem like the food situation is going to be a consistent thing. It's kind of just for this period while they're quarantining in their rooms. Um, the NBA actually uh, sent a statement to Jeff Zilligat at USA Today in which they said each of the 22 NBA teams were paired with a Disney culinary team who meets with each NBA team's nutritionist regularly to create menus to, su- to support specific team needs. 
after clearing quarantine, players will also have access to various restaurants on campus and delivery options to choose from, which we can talk about as well. Yeah, um, we'll talk about that. Uh, players receive three meals a day and four meals on game days. There is never a shortage of food options. Players can always request additional food by speaking with their team nutritionist. So, you know, if uh, assuming all of that is true, uh, I think ultimately, and, and I think for the most part, a lot like a lot of these players are just trying to get jokes off, right? Like and, yeah. Embiid was cracking jokes on Twitter as he is wont to do. And, and I don't think this is going to be like a long running issue at all. No, if they want a hot dog and potato chip sandwich, the hot dog will be in there, right? <laughs> but yeah, like you said, look, there there are plenty of fair complaints for them to have um, when it comes to health and safety. And obviously those are paramount. But um, again, I just don't think they're going to get any sympathy when it comes to like complaining about maybe the food is A instead of A plus or the accommodations are B plus instead of A plus. Like I, I don't think anyone's going to be crying for them for those reasons. Yeah, I think a lot of people just saw the photo that Rajon Rondo posted of his room, thinking that it looked like a pretty nice room. <laughs> Not that anyone would look at that and feel disrespected by it or consider right. that a, a Motel right. 6 type of atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, like I said, comic lack of self-awareness. Um, all right, you want? did you want to, you, you mentioned we'd get into it. Did you want to get into the Tillman Fertitta stuff first or did you want to get into the serious news first? Where, where do you want to go here? I mean, just because we're on the subject, maybe we can hit yeah. on the Fertitta thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, okay, what's your what, what's your big takeaway okay. from this? These, these six restaurants that are going to be available for delivery inside of the bubble are all owned by Tillman Fertitta. Do well, you think this is a now. coincidence? No, <laughs> no. This Maybe now um, Tillman Fertitta can actually afford to pay employees of his various companies because he was on TV literally this week, just a few days ago. I don't remember what news channel it was, but you can find it on like Twitter or YouTube. And his exact quote was something along the lines of he was defending why big companies have been getting bailed out. And his, his words were essentially like, yeah, I'm worth a few. He literally said a few billion dollars, but that doesn't mean he has the cash to just pay like $150 million payroll. And like, I'm not that naive to business. Like I do understand what he's saying in the sense that like someone could be technically a billionaire and it doesn't mean that they just have like $150 in cash yeah, lying around. Don't have that kind of liquidity. Exactly. At the same time, dude, come on, man. Speaking you know, of comic about- lack of self-awareness. <laughs> exactly. You know, to go on TV and be like, I'm worth a few billion dollars, but come on, uh, pay $150 million payroll. What am I, a schmuck? Um, so to, to go from that just a few days ago to then a few days later, like the NBA strikes a deal with one of their owners yeah, I mean, to essentially be the supplier of food. Like, I don't know. It, it, it stinks a little. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to dispel any notions that the NBA is essentially doing this because it wants to recoup as much money as it possibly can. Um, But I am curious about, so like the process say of, of ordering food from one of these restaurants. I mean, I I would assume the NBA players are getting a per diem. Like, is that, Yeah, I would, I mean, yeah, I I would assume so. Like, I I don't know how many people know this, like of our listeners, but NBA players get per diems on the road. Right. Like when they go on road trips, it's not just like their salary covers it. Like they get per diem for food. Right. And so they're all so basically on the road. Right. And I can't remember now who, who reported on like what the overall cost was going to be for the NBA to operate the bubble. But I would imagine that factored into that would be the per diem that the players are going to be getting while they're there. So 
I guess what, yeah, what I wonder about this is, is this kind of the NBA trying to save money by essentially using, you know, one of its own owners to supply food for the bubble that they're creating? Or is this their way of like trying to bail out Tillman Fertitta because he, he's over leveraged <laughs> and might be broke? Uh, because like, the, you know, the other owners would have to sign off on this, right? I don't think there's there's some like secret backroom handshake deal between Adam Silver and Tillman Fertitta that the other boards of governor don't know about. Like, so the other owners presumably agreed to allow Tillman Fertitta to essentially control the food supply inside the bubble. And so I wonder, like, is, you know, is the revenue from that being shared equally? Yeah, I, I don't know. I just think uh, I, I have a lot of questions about how it's going to work. Yeah, as do I. I think as do a lot of people. I know also like there are, uh, you know, people were making the jokes about like, wow, LeBron's definitely going to sneak a private chef in. Well, like private chefs are actually allowed. It's just, I believe they can't be in the actual bubble, but essentially you can have a private chef there preparing all your meals wherever and then having it delivered to the bubble. So yeah, I I assume someone like LeBron might do that. Um, In which case, like if you, if you are a private chef for one of these players, and that player is trying to get you to fly to Orlando, find a place to stay for potentially three months outside of the bubble. You better be driving a pretty hard bargain. If you're going oh, to Orlando yeah. to stay outside the bubble yeah. in a place where you, like the coronavirus is absolutely exploding, yeah. um, which by the way, I think over 11,000 new cases in Florida today. So Insanity. it's not slowing down at all. Um, you're outside the bubble and you're just preparing meals to be sent into the bubble while not really getting any of the perks or any of uh, like the safety protections that come with being inside of it. I would hope that whatever personal chef is doing that and taking that risk is being extremely well compensated. Yeah. Yeah. I hope they're a better business person than Tillman Fertitta. Uh, yeah. The other thing too, and look, people have pointed this out on social media, I've seen a lot of people tweet about it. And it's a good point of like, you can support local black owned businesses. You can support just local mom and pop shops in general that maybe have been, um, have been battered by the effects of the virus and and the shutdowns and stuff. Maybe this was a perfect opportunity for the NBA to partner with some of those companies and it could help keep those companies afloat while also providing food for the players. Again, like, I don't know, maybe we're naive and we don't realize, uh, like maybe those places wouldn't have been able to keep up. Like, I don't know. Well, Maybe I, they don't have the infrastructure to do it. I don't know. But I, I feel like not including any local businesses and then just having Tillman Fertitta's companies. Well, this is why I said it all. This is why I said it's not going to dispel any notion that, yeah. you know, you know, why the NBA is actually doing this. You know, the naive thing, I think, would be believing that the NBA actually cares about advancing social justice more than it cares about profit at the end of the day. Like that's a sad reality, but that is the reality. And as much as the NBA likes to posture, like it is this, you know, socially progressive league and compare itself favorably against other sports leagues that maybe have lagged a bit behind. Ultimately, I think that's just a reflection of the fact that, you know, the NBA's workforce is predominantly black and, for the most part, it's the players who are stepping up and using their vote, their voices and taking these stands uh, and moving the league in a progressive direction. But like the league itself is still just a profit driven corporation at the end of the day. And so, 100%. you know, expecting them to to prioritize um, like, you know, something like you mentioned, where they, they have a chance to like support black owned businesses and actually, you know, 
put their money where their mouth is and, and spin this restart into something positive. Ultimately, I think they're just more concerned about about staying afloat, lining people's pockets and and recouping as much money as they can. So I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying we shouldn't criticize them for it. I just think that's the reality of the situation. And to believe otherwise, that would be the naive thing. We put a post up today with some takeaways from the latest round of transactions. There were some big ones this time, like uh, Victor Oladipo is not going to play. Bradley Beal is not going to play. Jamal Crawford and Michael Beasley are back. But before we get to that, let's touch on this because we'd be extremely remiss to not mention it. So Deshaun Jackson, Philadelphia Eagles receiver, posts some, like, I feel like even using the word troubling isn't enough, but post quotes that were attributed to Hitler. Yeah, uh, there's nothing really else to think, but misattributed, yes. But regardless, that he thought were attributed to Hitler and post them to prove some ridiculous point. He has since apologized and has said, like, he's now working with, uh, I believe, like, local Jewish communities, either in Philadelphia or around the states. He's working with other NFL players to try to make amends for this incredibly insensitive lapse in judgment. The NBA connection here is that Steven Jackson, who all of us praised for his work in the immediate aftermath of the George Floyd murder. Of course, him and George Floyd are old friends. And Steven Jackson was one of the real trailblazers in this movement over the last few months. You know, the hashtag he was using on social media, love for all who have love for all. We all were talking about how respected Steven Jackson was, how he's this OG, he's a real one, whatever you want to say. And... Obviously incredibly disappointing, Steven Jackson comes out and defends Deshaun Jackson. And while he has since kind of given like a half-assed apology, it still boils down to the fact that he was saying to like look for the truth in what Deshaun Jackson was saying. No matter what good Steven Jackson did over the last few months or or even in his life, that doesn't excuse spewing anti-Semitic trash, which is what Deshaun Jackson spewed and what Steven Jackson spewed by supporting him. And I'll say flat out that it is extremely disappointing that more people in media and more people in the NBA, especially players, especially that rock with Steven Jackson, that no one or at least not enough people are calling him out. That's what I have to say about it. I know you probably have some deeper thoughts on it. So I'll throw to you. I think that's a pretty good summary. It was really disappointing um, and hurtful and just ignorant at the end of the day right and i think it is so disappointing because as you said like jackson has been such an important voice in the wake of george floyd's murder and i think people have really been listening to him and taking seriously what he has to say and so for him to i'm i'm wary of saying undercut that because i don't think that this should detract from the validity of his voice or his message regarding anti-black racism but if you're advocating for racial equality and at the same time perpetuating anti-Semitic tropes, whether or not you realize that that's what you're doing, you are muddying the waters. And I think I think ignorance is what's at the heart of this. Like, I truly believe Stephen Jackson when he says, like, that wasn't his intent. He didn't think he was being anti-Semitic. Uh, and I, I don't know why he felt the need to kind of, like, double down on that and defend Deshaun Jackson, even after Deshaun Jackson had come out and apologized. Um, and, you know, I think the thing that, that Steven Jackson said that was so disconcerting was that he was trying to educate people. You know, that's what Deshaun Jackson was doing. And, and he was speaking the truth. What truth exactly was he speaking? I think there's, and then, you know, he went, like he was talking to Don Lemon and I thought Don Lemon actually did a really good job kind of like pressing him on this issue, but but what Steven Jackson said was like, you didn't hear a word out of my mouth saying I hate Jews or that I support Hitler, which is just like not at all how this works. 
I think if you're going to speak on an issue like this, you got to have at least a tenuous grasp of the roots of anti-Semitism and the role that um, like conspiracy theories about Jews controlling the global economy um, and, you know, every level um, lever of power, how that's fanned the flames of anti-Semitism and, and the atrocities committed in the name of anti-Semitism. He had another IG live chat where he was like mentioning the Rothschilds and how they control all the banks. And I mean, like Nazi propaganda films used to like incite anti-Jewish hatred by vilifying the Rothschilds. And honestly, it's the same bullshit that's going on now with like George Soros conspiracy theories. And so I think it's just like, if you're going to speak on that uh, and you have a platform, like you just you just need to be educated on what it is you're actually saying and, and the stereotypes that you're perpetuating and how damaging that can be. So yeah, I just, I think it was ignorance, plain and simple. At the same time, I really hope that this doesn't get spun into something that it's not. And I, what I mean by that is like, I think there are some bad faith actors, particularly in right-wing media who use stuff like this to delegitimize a just cause by harping on an instance of hypocrisy and treating it as some kind of like gotcha moment. And I, I just like, I, I really don't want to see that happening. And I don't want to turn this into a straw man or paint with too broad a brush, but I can also tell you from experience, like there are sections of the Jewish community that consider the Black Lives Matter movement to be fundamentally anti-Semitic. Because Black Lives Matter as an organization, as part of its platform, is like, you know, supports Palestinian liberation and by extension is anti-Israel and anti-Zionism. And, and that faction of the Jewish community equates being anti-Israel to being anti-Semitic. And, and I mean, I, like I grew up hearing that shit a lot. Uh, and up to a certain age, honestly, I grew up believing it, too, because that was like the message that had been hammered home for me. And like that's a whole other can of worms that I don't really want to delve into right now. But I do think that there are people who have or will suggest that Stephen Jackson's Black Lives advocacy and his spouting of anti-Semitic tropes somehow don't exist independently of each other. And so I guess I just want to preemptively say that's bullshit. I, I'm not in any way condoning what he said or what he did. I'm like really disappointed by it. But I just really, really hope that it it won't be used as a way to like delegitimize um, the message that that he was supporting before this happened. It should not take away from what he's done, uh, which is a lot of positive. I just also definitely like I know you would agree. Don't think ignorance is an excuse. Just like I don't think ignorance is an excuse for the people that were saying very stupid things over the last couple of months, as the Black Lives Matter movement really, really started picking up momentum. Like. Again, it just comes down to like, you're either for the message of love for all who have love for all, or you're not. Right. And you're either speaking out about it or you're not. And listen, I'm not like, some people might not just be comfortable speaking out. And I don't want to like, I, I'm not into judging people who may not be comfortable speaking out for whatever reason. Okay. But there are a lot of people who spoke out rightly so during um, the last two months that have gone quiet now. And that's where I have some problems. Because, you know, the way I see it is if, if you're going to speak out about this stuff, then you can't pick and choose when you're going to speak out about it. And that's why I think it's been really disappointing that I'm not saying NBA players needed to go on TV or whatever and swear off Steven Jackson for life. But I think there needed to be a louder 
collective voice among NBA players, at least trying to correct Steven Jackson about what happened. And I think it's disappointing that we didn't see enough of that. Yeah. And to your point about ignorance, not being an excuse. I mean, if you said something racist or anti-Semitic out of ignorance and you get called on it, I mean, it's your responsibility to do the work and educate yourself and figure out why people are upset and offended by it, as opposed to just Which, like blindly defending yourself and doubling down and, and, you know, not doing the necessary introspection in order to get to the point where you actually understand why what you said was damaging. And again, to that point, like I mentioned, you know, we don't know how um, genuine he is or not, but Deshaun Jackson, who this all started with, is, to his credit, at least seemingly trying to do that. Like, he's already partnered with foundations and stuff and said he's going to learn. He's partnered with other NFL players. Steven Jackson really, like I said, offered a half-assed apology, and it, if anything, is just like doubling down on it. Yeah, I mean, hopefully Steven Jackson will get to that point um, and will make more of a, a genuine apology and more of a genuine attempt to kind of rebuild the bridges that he's burned here. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All right, so you want to get to uh, this latest round of pretty big name transactions? Yeah, sure. Where, where do you want to start? You want to start with, let's start with your Pacers. <laughs> Uh, okay. Victor Oladipo, not playing. Yeah. And it's understandable. Like he had this pretty catastrophic knee slash quad injury uh, only a year and a half ago. He had worked his way back, but had only played 13 games uh, in that return. Started to look good in the last few of those games, but now he has this layoff in the middle of it, which is longer than a typical off season. And it's very understandable why a guy like that, who is technically still rehabbing from this catastrophic injury, might not want to jump back into the fray. Having said that, there's also some conflicting stuff going on because like a few days before he opted out, Kevin Pritchard, Pacers GM, said that Oladipo looked like he was in as great a shape as he had ever seen him. Uh, that same day, Oladipo posted an Instagram story um, where he posted a picture of Gene Wilder's Charlie from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory uh, with the, the meme. The caption said something like, how quickly they forget, soon they'll all remember. And it seemed like he was like gearing up for this bubble takeover he was going to show the world. And then within a couple of days, it's like, oh, actually, he's just not going to play. Uh, I think there's already been some reporting now out of Indiana about how they, him and the Pacers maybe don't see eye to eye on potential extensions and they're already looking ahead to his 2021 free agency. There seems to be a lot of smoke there and I don't want to downplay the fact that he is probably concerned about his health, but there does seem to be some more factors than just that. Yeah, it's a really complicated situation, I think, with with the extension eligibility coming up and the fact that... I think it's impossible for the Pacers to know right now what he is going to look like going forward. I mean, they have this 13-game sample, and to be honest, the bulk of that 13-game sample was kind of rough. He looked really rusty coming back, and if anything, he kind of seemed to disrupt their rhythm a bit. They were 30, I don't remember exactly what the record was, but 
Um, all told, they went 32 and 20 without him this year, and they were seven and six with him in the lineup. His jumper looked all kinds of broken in his first few games back. He didn't look explosive going to the basket. And I think he, he started to iron out those kinks as, as he went along. Um, his last seven games before the shutdown, as I pointed out a couple of times, were actually really strong. Pacers went six and one in those games. He averaged, uh, I got to pull up these per 36 numbers here. <laughs> you and your per 36 is 21.5 points, 5.7 rebounds, and 4.3 assists per 36. Shot 48% from the field, 40% from three. And the Pacers outscored opponents by 10 points per 100 possessions with him on the floor during those games. So he was starting to work his way back and had by far his best game uh, in like the last game before the shutdown. So I feel like the timing for him almost couldn't have been worse. And I totally get, you know, with this long layoff now and with the injury that he has in the rear view, being concerned about suffering a soft tissue issue uh, injury. I think, honestly, if it was a question of like him having this fractured relationship with the team, he wouldn't be traveling to Orlando to enter the bubble and spend the next who knows how many weeks with the team not playing. And I think that to me says like, maybe there's some disagreement with the front office over his next contract. I, I, I would like 100% expect that to be the case because I'm sure he has a certain idea of what his value is or should be and certainly believes in his ability to get back to where he was. And I think the Pacers, somewhat understandably, are probably skeptical of that. And, you know, that picture, I don't know if that picture would have gotten any clearer whether he played or not. But I think from his perspective, I think he sees it as more beneficial for him to sit out and get all the way healthy for next season, um, which could be, you know, if if he sees this situation not ending in a, an extension this coming off season then I think it behooves him to just have as good a season as possible next year. And so I think that's maybe what it came down to for him. But I, I do think if it was really like his relationship with the team was that badly damaged, then he wouldn't be going to Orlando. It's worth mentioning that Nate McMillan did say that he found out about Oladipo not playing at the same time as the rest of us, which I thought was pretty telling. Um, again, I'm, I'm not saying it's like fractured beyond repair so far in advance. Like there's probably posturing going on on both sides, but I just think, like I said, there's a little bit more smoke here than I imagined before like reading into it. And and yeah, even the Nate McMillan thing surprised me. Um, it's a pretty respected head coach and for him to not know and um, until the rest of us found out, uh, like I said, it just seems a little telling is all. You, you think uh, like Oladipo should have reached out and told him before? Or someone should have, Jesus. Yeah. Like you'd hope your head coach who has to plan for these things like would know before fans and media knows. Um, yeah, I mean, look, ultimately, I just, I don't think it changes all that much in the big picture because unless Oladipo was going to get back, you know, to being the guy that he was pre-injury, which I think was a pretty big if, I, I didn't see him moving the needle for the Pacers enough to think that they could do much more than win a first round series. And I think they still would have been an underdog in a first round series. And even without him, they're an underdog, but I still give them a chance. Like if they get matched up with Miami, I give them a decent chance to win that series. I, really? I, I, without Oladipo or with him? No, either way. I, either way. I mean, like if, if they had Oladipo and Oladipo was back to like playing like his pre-injury self, then I think that's an entirely different story. 
Oh, 100%. With Oladipo playing essentially the way that he played in the 13 games that, that he got in before the shutdown, if he was basically at that level, you know, essentially somewhere between how he started out and how he finished, which would have been, I guess, my expectation, I don't think that was moving the needle enough to like make them a favorite in a first round series or if they managed to pull off an upset, you know, for them to go any further than the second round anyway. I think they're basically in the same position that they would have been. The Pacers were the Pacers had a good season. No no Lamb either, right? Isn't Jeremy Lamb yeah, also? Yeah, that's that's part of the issue. Like Oladipo coming back kind of masked the fact that Lamb got injured and without both of them, they're fairly thin on the wing and I think that, you know, that's going to put a lot of pressure on someone like Justin Holiday to, to pick up a lot of the slack and that's going to make things pretty tough. But again, like Brogdon, like presumably is going to be back healthy. He had a fantastic season. TJ Warren had an outstanding season. I mean, Sabonis, Miles Turner, like this is still a solid team. I don't think they're as good as Miami, but as you know, I, I am also not as high on Miami as you are. So although I got like, this also makes it less likely that Indiana holds on to the five seed. So maybe they end up in six and end up playing Boston in the first round, in which case I don't give them much of a chance. But um, but if they snag the five seed and match up with Miami, I think there's a shot they could pull off the upset. Not a good chance, but a chance. One team that doesn't need to worry about seeding and postseason matchups uh, with Bradley Beal now out is the Washington Wizards. <laughs> they probably didn't need to worry about it regardless, but now that Bradley Beal and Davis Bertans are out, you know, I joked last week about the Nets going 0-10 in the bubble and how Washington might just need to go 2-6 and to get in a play-in. Well, unfortunately, they're probably also going 0-8 in the bubble, although I think they play Brooklyn. So yeah, maybe one of them will go 1-8. Yeah, one of them will go 1-7, but... You look at the team the Wizards are now bringing to the bubble. Look, I, Rui Hachimura is an exciting young player. Uh, Thomas Bryant's like a solid young big. And that's probably your two best players, supported by what? Like Ish Smith, Shabazz Napier. This seems bad, really. But they were already bad with Bradley Beal becoming the 12th player in history to average 30 points and six assists in a season. Imagine how bad they're going to be without him in a setting where basically only the good teams are there. It's, Dude, without him or Bertans, like that's their two best yeah. players. The, the two best players from a team that lost two thirds of its games this year. Yeah, that's like, like I said, I think it's well within reason that one of them or the Nets are going 0-8 and, and one of them's going 1-7 and because someone has to win that game, unfortunately. Obviously, this isn't going to happen, but if the league was like a little bit bolder and maybe a little bit less motivated by profit... They would just axe the Nets and Wizards right now and move two of those Western Conference teams over to the East. The schedule, though, and, like, I don't know. I just, like, that seems like less of a logistical complication than bringing two teams, and every team's, what, like a traveling party of 35, I think? Yeah. So that's 70 people that they're bringing into the bubble for no reason, just to go and lose eight games. That's correct. To your point, I think it's more of a logistical nightmare to try to have those two teams play 48 minutes of basketball eight times <laughs> and have human beings watch them do that than it would be to change the schedule of getting rid of the team. I'm with you there. Uh, I don't want to waste too much time on the Wizards because as we just bandied about, they are terrible and they're going to be terrible. I just think the the shame in it is that I was actually looking forward to watching Beal. I think I mentioned it last week, but like one of the only reasons I wanted to actually watch this pathetic excuse for an East race was that 
given how much Brooklyn had been depleted, I did think Beal could just get on a hot streak. This is like, again, this is a guy who averaged 30 points and six assists. He averaged 37 and a half points over his last 10 games, which included back-to-back games of 55 and 53 points. Like he could have been really fun to watch had he sensed there was something to play for if he considered, you know, an eight seed and losing in the first round, something to play for. So it sucks that it's just one more thing to watch in Orlando that has now been taken away. And now there's just more meaningless games and even more meaningless playoff quote unquote race in the East. And, and really that's the only reason I think this is news, but otherwise the wizards are what they are. They're trash. Couldn't have said it better myself. I don't think this affects anything in terms of the wizards future. I think we were both in agreement that even though they might have to trade Beal at some point to kickstart the rebuild, they're probably going to wait to see what him and John wall look like together again, because of how much money they owe both of them. So yeah, I don't think this alters much in terms of the future. The only other team, I guess, really to talk about, and we did talk about them last week, but they've been further depleted since then, is the Brooklyn Nets, who, since we last spoke, was confirmed they've now lost Spencer Dinwiddie for the bubble. They lost Torian Prince, who also tested positive for COVID. And they've signed Jamal Crawford and Michael Beasley. Thoughts? I don't really have too many thoughts. I mean, this team is unrecognizable, obviously. You know, they're they're yanking in players who haven't played in the league in almost two years. Which, I mean, how what a, what a strange experience that must be. For guys like Jamal Crawford, Beasley, Joachim Noah, Lukumba Mute, who signed with the Rockets. Like, these guys who haven't been in the league in, like, in almost two years. For this to be how they are reintroduced to NBA basketball is so strange to me. Uh, J.R. Smith, another one, like, and I'm sure, you know, they're happy in their way to, to be playing NBA basketball again. It's just so funny, like, that this, like, this is how they're getting back into the league uh, in, in, like, such strange circumstances. But, yeah, I mean, I guess there are a lot of Jamal Crawford fans, you know, in the NBA and also uh, among, like, the broader NBA fan base. So, Super well-respected by his peers. Yeah, absolutely adored. Um, and obviously, you know, anytime there are signings on the buyout market, uh, you know, as, as players were signing during the transaction window, I think there's always kind of a push to get Jamal Crawford back onto an NBA roster. And obviously, like we talked about, I think a couple episodes back, part of that was bolstered by the fact that he dropped a 51 piece in his last NBA game, which I think would have been a perfect way for him to go out. But... Uh, maybe he's going to come back and drop 60 in Disney World. Um, well, he's going to take 60 shots like, if honestly, you look at that Brooklyn roster. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, they just, like, I, you know, I was theorizing about what Karis LeVert was going to be able to do or have to do because there was just so little shot creation on that team. Uh, but yeah, Jamal Crawford's going to basically be able to get all he can eat and, and Beasley as well. So, um, I mean, I guess that will make the Nets a little bit more watchable, at least maybe like the first couple of games, I think people will just want to tune in to be like, okay, like is Jamal Crawford still an NBA player? Like I think Beasley has a lot of fans. Um, I don't know about around the league, but definitely like he has sort of carved out a niche in the hearts and minds of, of the NBA Twitterati. So I think there'll be cool bees. I think there'll be people who are interested in watching that team just to see what those guys look like. I I do feel like the interest is going to burn out really quickly. But at least in the early going, that might give people a reason to want to watch the Nets. And that's really all that needs to be said about it. Like, they'll probably hold off the Wizards for the eighth seed because the Wizards, like you just said, are, are likely to go winless in Orlando. 
and then they'll get swept in the first round and that'll be that. Um, and I guess, I mean, for, for, for Crawford, for Beasley, like they'll probably treat this like an audition for next year. Like they're probably looking to sign a contract in the NBA next year. And I'm sure they view this as an opportunity to put themselves out there and, and prove that they can still compete at this level. So. Yeah. And, and to that point, like, I don't want to be a curmudgeon about it. I mean, I laughed at the fact that everyone wanted Jamal Crawford back in the league. Look, like the guy hasn't been like a positive impact player, I'd say in six or seven years. And I'm, I'm a well aware that he's won a six man of the year award more recently than that. He won one in 2016. It was his third time winning one. Well aware he dropped 51 in his last game and had a decent like final week last season. But in terms of overall value, it's really been about six or seven years since this was like a consistently positive value player. Having said all that, the Nets are probably the one team in the bubble that are desperate enough to justify, you know, not just doing it as some sort of like feel good experiment to make people happy. Like they legitimately need guys who can play some NBA basketball. And in Crawford's case, they desperately need someone who can handle the ball and do something, throw the ball at the rim once in a while. Like that's how desperate they are for for creation, essentially. You look at their playmaking ability. It's going to be Karis LeVert, Jamal Crawford, Chris Kioza. Who am I missing? <laughs> uh, like, really, I, I'm yeah. not even exaggerating. They, they waved Theo Pinson, I think, to sign yeah. Tyler. Tyler Johnson can handle the ball. Oh, right. Okay, I forgot, I forgot about Tyler Johnson. Okay. Um, but, but, yeah. Yeah, like, as you said, Jamal Crawford's going to get all he can eat here, and it'll... It'll be interesting, and at least he landed somewhere where they legitimately need to see what he can offer them, and it wasn't just the kind of thing where like someone signed him as this, like, ah, let's make some people happy. Yeah. In terms of Beasley, like, I don't really know. He, I guess he can give them some size, some length. He can kind of score inside when he doesn't fall in love with his jumper, but given everything we've already said about how much Brooklyn needs, I have a feeling Michael Beasley will fall in love with his jumper, and there'll be some like two for 18 nights. Yeah, which again is fine because I think there's there's just not there's just not a whole lot at stake here. Like there there is yeah. something at stake for Beasley because, like I said, he's going to want to sign a, a contract in the offseason and, and be in the NBA right. next year. So, you know, he actually maybe has more at stake than most. But for the Nets as an organization, these games don't matter. You know, like they're playing for next season when presumably KD is going to be back healthy and Kyrie will be back in the mix. Maybe they'll try and get a third star, but like, you know, even, even if they were fully healthy going into the bubble, like they weren't going to win a playoff series. So it's like, none of this really matters that much for them. Here's what I'm wondering, but assuming they do get the eighth seed and, and play Milwaukee in the first round, I'm going to set the over under on the average margin of victory for the Bucks in that series at 35 and a half. <laughs> Are you taking the over or the under? I'm taking the under. I'm taking the under. I think there will be a couple games where it is higher than that, but man, wow, geez. I mean, the Bucks can be pretty merciless when. I mean, I guess the reason yeah. to take the under would be like, okay, they're they're gonna build like a 25 point lead in the first half, and then Giannis is gonna like Giannis, Middleton, all those guys are gonna sit probably in the second half yeah. of all these games. Like realistically, yeah. Giannis, Giannis will. Giannis could sit for that entire series and they could still win by an average margin of 15 or 20 points a game. No, it'll be ugly. It'll be ugly and it'll be a terrible product. Right, which is why, I mean, obviously they can't make this kind of change on the fly, but imagine if they were just like, okay, like, you know, there are now essentially 
two playoff spots up for grabs. You know, there's that eight seed in the West that's up for grabs. Oh, you can make it three. I mean, you could basically say, all right, we're moving like the Pelicans and Blazers into the Eastern Conference. And suddenly like the Magic and Nets have to worry about losing their playoff spots. Maybe a team like the Kings has a chance to make it in in the West. Whereas like you have, what is it, five teams in the West competing for one spot? Yeah. If you include the Grizzlies, um, you know, versus basically like the Magic by default. There's six gonna... teams, I think, competing for one spot. Right. Grizzlies, Pelicans, Spurs, Blazers, Kings. Suns. Yeah. 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 But hell, look, if you, even if you just move the Suns over to the Eastern Conference, like they're going to be way more competitive than than either the Wizards or the Nets are and would provide a way more fun first-round series against Milwaukee than either of those teams would. So that would be, I don't know, that would be a decent solution to this issue. I just, like, if you were a player on the Nets, if you're if you're Karis LeVert or Jared Allen or Joe Harris, I mean, I don't, like, I, I can't imagine you're feeling particularly good about jumping through all these hoops, going to Orlando and, like, you know, eating these airplane meals. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but, you know, every, everything that they're that they're sort of uh, sacrificing and risking in order to do this, to, to play for nothing. Like, I, yeah. and I kind of hypothesized, you know, when, when Dinwiddie and DeAndre Jordan uh, had pulled out on top of like Kyrie already not being there. I mean, I, I wondered whether that would just spark a mass exodus when the Nets just generally realized that, they didn't have anything to play for and it wasn't worth it. Torian Prince has since opted out because he got COVID. Um, and I guess the rest of them are going to play. Um, I don't know. Are they, that's one of the teams that, that have already traveled there. I know like some, I believe every team is now there. Really? Um, I think it's worth like considering too, how a guy like Karis Levert deep down might feel about, having to now share the ball with Jamal Crawford or losing however many shots a game to Michael Beasley. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't care at all. Maybe he's just stoked to play with Jamal Crawford. Maybe he was like a big fan. I don't know. Right. But I think it's worth considering that. Like, Karis Levert was maybe a guy who was licking his chops at looking around and saying, well, I'm literally the only competent creator here. Like, I'm going off, getting mine. I, the reason I wasn't sure if all the teams had um... – had arrived in Orlando. Did you read this Tom Haberstroh story about, about like the NBA uh, testing situation? Testing stuff? Yeah, I did. I did. Cause this was a crazy nugget in there. In the 24 hours before departure for Orlando, one NBA team had its tests accidentally sent to the wrong lab. According to league sources, the mistake forced the entire team to retake the Corona test later in the day, delaying their trip to Orlando by several hours. Um, and that was part of the, the, in that story, he also mentioned that the NBA changed its testing provider because their previous provider, um, which is called quest diagnostics was apparently overwhelmed by, um, essentially requests and, and ran into capacity issues. And so the NBA is now using, uh, a different tester that has moved both them and the MLS to like the front of their testing line, which Again, like we've talked a lot about the optics of this, and that's just another example of how, as much as Adam Silver would like us to believe that sports are here to save us all, uh, that is not entirely what's going on right now. Yeah. I can't believe we're about to end for a second week in a row with me quoting Madonna that we live in a material world and we're all just material girls, but apparently that's going to become a weekly thing now. 
Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you have anything else to say about like personnel stuff? I don't. Uh, the only, I guess, the only other note I had is that uh, I thought it was pretty badass that the Raptors showed up in matte black buses with uh, Black Lives Matter in huge paint across those buses and the OVO Gold Champions logo at the back. I thought that was a very pronounced way to arrive. Announce, yeah, to announce their arrival. Uh, I think it was very. It, it just had Masai Ujiri's fingerprints all over it. You know, like yeah. very much so, like a reminder that. You know, if you're sitting there on that Raptors bus, you get there and it's like you remind them like we're still the champions. You're still going to beat us. Nothing's changed there, even though Kawhi's gone. But also we are going to be the franchise that pushes this message as far as it needs to go because Masai Ujiri is the team's president. I just think uh, it was it was very Raptors-esque under Masai Ujiri. And yeah, I, I thought it was a pretty powerful way to show up. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm still kind of ambivalent about the use of symbolism and the way that the NBA is going about its messaging. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I also don't know ultimately how productive stuff like that really is. And especially because, I mean, we don't really have to go too in depth on this, but like the thing with, with the names on the back of the jerseys, I was already, not that I was like skeptical necessarily. I I totally thought it was a good idea to allow the players to express themselves in that way. Um, and put whatever they wanted to on the back of their jerseys to get their message across in whatever way they wanted to. But but it's symbolic. It's not tangible. Right. But also to mitigate that, like for the NBA to step in and determine, okay, here are a list of things that you can put on the back of your jersey that we are mandating completely defeats the purpose to me. And I know most of the players are still doing it anyway. I think there are 17 players um, as was a Woj reported that there were 17 players who aren't gonna put a message on the back of their jerseys which i'm totally fine with that i i hope that nobody comes after those players um because ultimately to me this just feels like uh, another one of these sort of empty corporate compromises uh that doesn't really do justice to i think the extent to which uh, the nba players can actually contribute to this movement in tangible ways and have been doing uh over the past right months. so I'm not saying messaging and symbolism isn't important in its own way. I just think, I think the NBA uses this stuff sometimes to obscure the fact that it's not actually doing the work. And I think, you know, talking about the Tillman Fertitta thing and, and the missed opportunity to support black owned businesses is a perfect, uh, perfect example of that. Um, and also, you know, again, modulating uh, the messages that are allowed to go on the backs of these jerseys is just once again, speaks to the fact that, the NBA is a corporate entity that's protecting its own interests. That's that's what it is. Yeah, coming up with an approved list of social messages to put at the back is just a really cheesy way of diluting and watering down something that was already symbolic instead of tangible anyway. So with you there, that was disappointing. In terms of those 17 players that chose not to put anything, yeah, like I, who knows what's going to come of that. Although I'd, I'd say... Anyone who chose group economics as the message on the back of their jersey, I think is going to get more flack than one of those 17 players who put nothing. Uh, and and I think that's the last thing I have to say this week. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just going to be Tillman Fertitta is going to be the lone guy showing up in a group economics jersey. Tillman Fertitta showing up in a customized Rockets group economics jersey courtside. Anyway, so I think probably uh, like in the near future, like our next episode, we can start 
to like talk more tangibly and more in depth about actual basketball stuff. I just feel like it's been weird and hard to, to talk about that stuff in earnest because I have felt so much skepticism about this thing going off without a hitch for so long that it just sort of felt weird to talk about it as if it was going to happen. But it seems like it is at least going to get started. So maybe on our next episode, we can talk some nuts and bolts, X's and O's, and talk about how we see this thing playing out on the basketball court. I'll be here. <laughs> I'll talk to you then, man. All right. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Kasharo. Pound the Rock. <laughs> <laughs>